Well, good morning, New Spring. Happy Father's Day to all of you in South Auditorium, North Auditorium. Those of you watching online and on television, we're so glad you're joining us. And if you're in the house today, yes, indeed, we did start off with Huey Lewis in the news. So uh, for all of you who are your first time being here, you know now you're in a weird kind of church because you got Huey Lewis in the news and Michael McDonald, a little Chicago at the beginning, and now we're about to go into this heavy-duty prophecy series But one thing I hope you get is that we don't take ourselves too seriously, but we take God real seriously. And so today we're going to open the Bible to talk about angels. We're in a series called Clash of Dynasties. It's the clash between God's dynasty and Satan's dynasty. And it's in the book of Daniel this year. We're in Clash of Dynasties 2. So we're going to be talking about angels because angels, as I'm going to share with you in just a moment, figure so prominently in this book. But I do have to ask myself the question, how did I wind up preaching on the subject of angels on Father's Day? That may be the greatest disconnect in the history of the church. So uh, it is, it's, it's a great topic, and we're going to be unpacking it today. As I said, as we're studying the book of Daniel, and Daniel, as we looked at last week, is all about the future. It's a 12-chapter book in the Old Testament, and yet there's so much prophecy about things yet to happen in this book. That's why we're exploring it. Also, as we'll look beginning next week, there are prophecies in the book of Daniel that make us believe that we're in the zone right now of these things happening in our lifetime. Frankly, a lot of the things have already taken place in the last 70 years. So we'll be talking about that in the future, Um, and if you didn't get to hear the message from last week, you can check it out online, and it'll kind of give you a background for why we're spending our summer studying this awesome book of prophecy in the Bible. Now today, since angels figure so prominently in the book of Daniel, we need to have a workshop, and that's what this message is going to be. It's not really a sermon. This is a workshop on the subject of angels, and the reason why we need to have this talk is there is so much misinformation on the subject. You know, I see uh, little ceramic angels when I you know, go shopping with Mary Alice sometimes, and you see these delicate little things, and people collect them, and I don't guess there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just that it's just pure misinformation. And my dad taught me years ago that the way to keep from having a misunderstanding is to have an understanding, and the way to get over or to get cured from misinformation is to have information. So in today's talk, I just want to follow a flight plan with you. It is not a sermon. It's information. It's biblical information on the subject of angels. And since so much is wrong in our culture, it is important for us to get it Right. Okay, for this idea that angels are cute, cuddly little things that fly around with wings, you know, little babies with harps and wings, let me introduce you to the biblical concept of an angel just to give you some concept of what the Bible has to say. Let me give you a little background. This story is found in the book of 2 Kings chapter 19. And the king at this time is Hezekiah. And he is king over Judah at a time where Judah is experiencing spiritual revival, but they're in a weakened military condition. And the most powerful army in the world has come to wipe out Judah. It, it's the Assyrians. We would, we would call that modern-day Iran. But anyway, the Assyrian army, most powerful army in the world at that moment, is laying siege to Jerusalem and Judah. But they are sending words saying, you need to surrender now. And they're saying, if you don't surrender now, this thing is going to be brutal. And so the king of Assyria sends word through a letter to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And he basically says this, why do you think your God is going to help you? 
I've already conquered all the other nations, and their gods didn't help them. What makes you think your God is any stronger than the gods of these other powers? And he starts ripping them and making fun of them and, and trashing them and trashing God and trashing Judah and, and basically saying, you can't fight us. We're too powerful for you. And the most interesting thing happens at that moment. I think I talked about it in our last summer series, Kings and Queens. But Hezekiah takes the letter and he goes to the temple and he opens it and spreads it out before the Lord. And he said, God, what the man is saying is true. They have conquered other peoples. And when he says we're not strong enough to fight against them, every word of it's true. But you're God and you can do extraordinary things. And so after he prayed, God had his pastor, Isaiah, come to him and said, here is what God says. And this is really kind of cool. We'll talk about it some other day. God is saying, you know what? The little girls of Israel are going to make fun of you as you leave because I'm going to deal with you. So how does God deal with the Assyrian army? Let's read it. And this will give us perspective to know a little bit about how powerful angels are. 2 Kings 19.35, the, just one, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. One angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians who at that time were the world's finest fighting force. Now, in the Hebrew, it's kind of an interesting little thing. It says the next morning when everybody got up, they were dead. But it's like two words for dead, two Hebrew words for dead mashed up together. It was like when everybody got up the next morning, they were dead, dead. That's what it says in Hebrew. That's probably the first time so dead ever appeared in human language. So the next morning when they got up, they weren't just dead. They were so dead. I don't know what that angels did to them, but angel nuked them pretty good. So just to let us know, the angels aren't little cute, cuddly things flying around they're very powerful beings. One more thing, and this is just a pet peeve of mine, and I, and I know that our culture kind of embraces this, so the last thing I want to do is to cause anyone to feel bad about this, but I do want us to be straight. Let's be sure that we don't tell our kids that when grandma dies that she becomes an angel, because that's not true. I don't know where that even comes from. If, you're, if your grandmother or your mother or your, you know, whoever you're talking about is a daughter of God, why demote them to an angel? They're God's daughter. In fact, the Bible has this to say. We may talk about it sometime. The Bible says that they will judge the angels. So, so don't demote her. Don't demote him. I don't guess the worst thing in the world, but grandma doesn't have wings and she's not an angel now. She's, she is who she is. She is younger, more beautiful than she's ever been before, more wonderful than she's ever been before in her glorified state, a daughter of God. So I just want to make sure we get some information that helps us counter the misinformation. So here we go. We're looking at the book of Daniel. This is the second talk in the series, The Clash of Dynasties 2, and we're looking at the book of Daniel. We need to study angels for at least three reasons. Here is A, letter A. We need to study the angels because they are mentioned frequently in the book of Daniel. In fact, I don't know where word for word, chapter for chapter in the Bible, you will find more mentions of angels than you do in the book of Daniel. <clears throat> this is interesting to me. We believe that there are archangels. We know for sure that there is one archangel, Michael. The Bible identifies him. I personally believe, and I can't prove this, but I also believe that Gabriel is an archangel. There are hierarchies of angels, and the archangels would be, as the word suggests, in the highest level. I also believe that Lucifer, who we know of as Satan, was once an archangel. Now, what is interesting about this is that if Gabriel and Michael are both archangels, 
It is interesting to notice that this is the only book in which they appear together in the same story. In fact, the only time where you will see Gabriel and Michael in the same story is in the book of Daniel, and we will read that as we get toward the close of the message. It's also interesting that Gabriel, as well as we know this angel, is only mentioned in two books in the Bible. First of all, you're not surprised that Gabriel is in Luke. That's the Christmas story. And you've heard it read, whether it's in church or in the Peanuts Christmas special, <laughs> you know that Gabriel is in the book of Luke. But Gabriel is also in the book of Daniel, our book. So as we're going to see, angels are mentioned frequently in the book of Daniel. B, angels play a prominent role. As we'll see time and time again, the book of Daniel toggles back and forth between stories and prophecy. There are narrative stories and prophetic stories. Um, we covered one of the narratives last week as Daniel refuses to drink the wine and eat the meat that's been dedicated to idols. The probably two most prominent narratives in the book of Daniel are Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Now, let me read to you a verse from both of those narratives and see if you get what I mean by angels playing a prominent role. This is Daniel 3.28. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel in the lion's den. At this point, Daniel is toward the end of his life. When we first meet him, he's 15 years old. In this chapter, he's about 90. And he has lived out the Babylonian Empire. He's now in the Persian Empire. And Darius, the governor or the king, um, has placed Daniel in the lion's den because Darius's assistants have basically thrown Daniel under the bus in, in a deliberate kind of way, and Daniel has to go to the lion's den. But Darius was concerned about Daniel, and he, he asks Daniel the morning after Daniel has spent the night with the lions, he said, Daniel is your God whom you serve continually, able to deliver you. Notice Daniel's answer, Daniel 6.21. Daniel answered, my God has sent his angel and he shut, the mouth, he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me. So, I mean, these are just a couple of, 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 uh, of cuts from the book of Daniel to help us know that angels play a prominent role. So, why are we studying angels? A, because angels are mentioned frequently. B, angels play a prominent role. Now, C, and this is the most important one of all. We're talking about the clash of dynasties between God's dynasty and Satan's dynasty. One of these dynasties is actually headed up by an angel. Um, and that, of course, is Lucifer or Satan. I've got a lot of friends who are skeptics, some agnostics, some non-theists. And what they will say to me kindly is, Mark, you had to invent a devil. Because, you know, if you have a god, you must invent an opposite and equal nemesis. I always kind of smirk at that because Satan may be opposite, but he's definitely not equal. God is omnipresent, omniscient. He is, uh, is all-powerful. So consequently, Satan can claim none of those things. But the Bible does tell us about how Satan went rogue. And this is several places in the Bible. Perhaps most clearly stated is in the book of Isaiah. And what Isaiah is going to write about is what happened before the world was created when Lucifer went rogue. This is in Isaiah 14. God is indicting him by saying, you said to yourself, 
I will ascend to the heaven and set my throne above God's stars. Now, in this case, stars are often used in place of angels. Not that angels are stars. It's just it's a word sometimes to describe angels. So basically, Satan said, I will be like God. I will be in charge of all the other angels. Verse 14, he just says it. I will be like the Most High. Satan is saying, there's no reason for God to get all these props. I'm just as big as God. I should... I should get worship. Well, how did God react to that? As I said, it's important to recognize this is not an equal match. God says, instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. Everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth? Let me deal with another myth right now while we're just rolling through this um, information campaign. One of the weirdest things I've heard, and it's so totally wrong, is that Satan, uh, hell is Satan's domain that Satan will torture people in hell. <laughs> you can let go of that. that is, that's not only silly, it's insane. Because hell was created to punish Satan. So I promise you, he's not going to be in charge. Now, God is talking about that, and God is saying, you know what, when I finally get around to judging you and putting you in hell, everybody like you and me is going to walk by and say, is this the jerk that messed up the world? Because he's going to look like such a puny run. So please understand, Satan may be opposite to God, but he is definitely not equal. Okay, I always tell my wife, when I die, I want you to put on my tombstone, once again, he's in over his head, because I have spent my entire life in over my head, and I am so in over my head, preaching a message about angels, because angels are all over the Bible. They're in the book of Genesis, the book of Revelation, and everywhere in between. So the idea that in between now and just a few moments from now that I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about angels is laughable. I'm just going to kind of give you a touch. But I need to let you know that I've gotten so excited about this topic, I smell oncoming series to a church near you. So just want to let you know about that. And um, hint, hint, it could be our Christmas series. So uh, even if you don't get to hear everything you want to hear today, of course, you can study on your own. But we got a series coming up. And today, I just am going to give you bullet points, because that's all we have time for, 14 bullet points. Now, I'll be honest with you, if I heard a preacher say he had 14 points, that scared the life out of me. I grew up, my dad was a pastor, my dad took me to hear preaching. I used to say something, but now you guys are all too young to know what I'm talking about. I used to say that my dad took me to every revival except Creedence Clearwater, but most of you have no idea who Creedence Clearwater is. Or why that's funny. You get an old person to tell you after, after service or somebody that's into classic rock and roll. So I'd be nervous if I knew that the preacher had 14 points, but I'm going to get on my horse and ride, and we're going to cover these pretty fast. So if you're ready, take a deep breath, and I want to give you 14 bullet points about angels from the Bible. Here's the first one. Angels are created beings made by God. Angels are made by God. This is not in the, I don't think this will be on the iMac, but in Colossians 1.16, the Bible says through him, speaking of Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. All of those are designations for angels. So right out of the box, we learn that God made angels. Number two, their job was to assist God. Angels were made to be assistants. Did God need assistance? No, it's just God does what he does. And sometimes he does things that are kind of challenging for us to figure out, but we're humans and he's God. So God decided he wanted assistance and he made angels. There are so many texts about this, but let me give you a couple of them that will prove this. 
I'm a debater from high school and college days, and so usually when I lay down a plank, I've got evidence. So here's, here's some evidence to that. Psalm 103, verse 20, praise the Lord, you angels, you mighty ones who carry out his plans, listening for each of his commands. So if you get a picture of angels, don't get the picture of your head. They're little cherubs flying around with fluttering wings on their backs and, you know, carrying bows and arrows or harps or whatever else. If you want to get a picture of an angel, you just get a picture of these mighty beings close to God, listening for what God has to say. They are his assistants. Now we're going to be in our book in the book of Daniel that we'll look at later this summer. In Daniel 7, verse 9, Daniel sees a vision, pretty much the same vision that John saw in Revelation chapter 5. He gets a glimpse at the throne room of heaven. Daniel says, I watched as the ancient one, that's Jehovah God, sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his air like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne. Hold on to something solid for this next line. It says millions, with an M, millions of angels ministered to him. And as if that's not enough, Daniel says many millions stood to attend him. So I want you to understand that when you look up to heaven, God's not like there with 30 angels around him or 12 angels like he did, Jesus did with the disciples. Millions, millions, many millions of angels surround God to do his bidding. File that away from when we start talking about how God sends angels to help you. Number three, angels were given free will. It's a real biggie right here. Any living being God creates has a free will. One of the questions I've been asked so many times, if God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did he create him in the first place? Well, all of God's beings have free will. You have to understand a little bit about God's personality. What God seeks is love. I mean, when Jesus was on the earth, he said you can sum up following God in two words. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what God seeks from us is love. Many of us grew up in toxic religion. And we heard in that, whether, whether the leaders intended for us to hear this or not, we heard that if you jump through enough hoops, then God will accept you. Well, God does have rules. There's no doubt about that. But what God truly seeks from us is love. Now, there can be no love if there's no free will. Let me prove that to you. Some of you have been in a controlling relationship. Fair? You're in a relationship with someone who sought to control you. And, and in a very toxic kind of way. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it possible for you to love someone when that person controls you and demands your actions to be a proof of love? As you and I both know, that doesn't draw, some, that doesn't draw you close to someone. That repels you and pushes you away. Many of us wisely ended a, a controlling relationship because we recognize that love wasn't possible in that scenario. Some of you are in a controlling relationship right now, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, that's for another discussion. But you understand that God always is about free will. That's why he gives us choice. And in that free will, we do a lot of bad things. One of the big questions I also get asked is, why does evil exist in the world? Evil exists because God has given all of his creations free will. And a lot of, a lot of things happen in those choices that are not good. Remember this. And I won't elaborate on this, but this is just what you'll see when you study the Bible. God is always about truth and free choice. God will always say, here is the truth. If you take this, if, if you go down road A, you can expect consequence A. If you go down road B, you can expect consequence B. God is always about truth, but he's always about choice. 
truth, and choice. Satan is always about lies and control. Watch when we get into the last empire that we'll start covering next week in a message called Daniel Tells Your Future. And what you'll discover is Satan's tactic in this last day's world empire is control. And I think we sort of feel that icy grip even today. So number three, angels were given free will. In that free will, number four, bullet point four, one third of the angels join Lucifer in his rebellion against God. You have to understand, Satan, Lucifer, is very persuasive. And as amazing as it seems, he talked a third of the angels into joining him. A few moments ago, we saw that stars is sometimes a biblical metaphor used to describe angels. Revelation chapter 12, we're in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12, the Bible speaks of Satan and it says his tail, not that Satan has a tail, he's a spirit being, but God's just giving us metaphors. His tail swept away one third of the stars of the sky. So when Satan rebelled against God, a third of the angels joined him. Three verses later, we lose the metaphor and God just spells out what happened. Revelation 12, 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael we know is the archangel, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. Bullet point five. At this point, the angels locked in their positions. God gave them free choice. Two-thirds of the angels locked in their position to be supportive to God. One-third of the angels said we're rogue, and they were locked out, and this is so important to today's talk, with no chance of redemption. God never gave the angels a second chance. Again, there's so many scriptures on this, but let me prove it with a sixth verse of the little one chapter book of Jude. The angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belong, God has kept them in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. This is a real good, real good moment for us to sort of pull over to the side of the road and realize something. Hell was not created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. How do we know that? We know that because of what Jesus said. This is Jesus himself in Matthew 25, 41. He talked about some people who would wind up going to hell, but he said, God will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared, heads up, for the devil and his angels. One of the greatest preachers in my lifetime, he's with the Lord now, is E.V. Hill, who pastored a great church in the Watts part of Los Angeles. And he, was, he preached all over the world, and again, one of the greatest preachers I ever heard. And he had a sermon called, You Can Go to Hell. And uh, his wife called him, I think E.V. Was, was preaching in Chicago, and, and she asked him, what'd you preach tonight? He said, you can go to hell. And <laughs> she said, come again. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, my sermon was called, You Can Go to Hell. And I heard E.V. preach that message. And he said, you know what? If you really want to go to hell, you can go, but you ought not to go. And his first point was, you haven't been invited to go, and you shouldn't go where you haven't been invited. That's a good, good point. So always remember this. Hell was not created for people. It was created for Satan and his angels. But after God has given us Jesus in such a wonderful offer, if you flip God off with both hands, where else can you go except the place that God created for Satan and his angels? Now, number six, this free will of the angels and this revolution in heaven has created a clash of dynasties. 
One more time from Revelation chapter 12 as we talk about this revolution in heaven. The ninth verse of chapter 12 said, This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth. Ouch. That's where we live. Thrown down to the earth with all of his angels, which we know of. We have a nomenclature that we use called demons. Now, let me ask you a question. Just for all of you paying attention in our world today, does it seem like Satan's power is getting stronger in our world? I mean, last week I shared with you how that there's so much violence in our world today that there are stories that 30 years ago would have been the story of the decade. They're not even the story of the day today. Well, if you look at our world, you look at violence and hatred and racism and pain and cruelty, it's very clear that our world is getting more full of these awful things. In Revelation 12, we get an explanation for it in the last days. The Bible says, rejoice you heavens, but woe to the earth. Well, what did we read a moment ago? It says that Satan and his demons have been cast down to the earth. Woe to the earth because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. Now, in this clash of dynasties, does Satan harbor any illusions that he is going to win? No, never in a million years. Satan has known this thing was over since a night in a garden in the city of Jerusalem. You know, I've heard preachers say that when Jesus died on the cross and his body laid in the grave, that Satan and his demons had a keg party and, and had a great time. Forget about that. Satan never questioned that God was going to raise Jesus from the dead. He knew God too well. He's believed that people don't really serve God except for what they can get. And so the last gasp chance he had to deal with God's dynasty was when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night of his arrest. And Satan came to him and threw everything at him to keep him from going to the cross. When Jesus knelt that night and prayed, not my will, but your will be done, and he got to his feet, Satan knew it was game, set, match. It's been over ever since. So he knows he's not going to win, but we just read that he's getting more virulent because he knows his time is short. Number seven, when humans were created, because all this revolution in heaven happened before God made the world. When humans were created, the satanic dynasty attempted to enlist them, and he did with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Bullet point eight. The attempt, unfortunately, was successful at the worst possible moment. Why did I say the worst possible moment? He got the first two humans before the rest of us were born, and we were all in their DNA. So consequently, he gets the whole human race. Number nine, the damage done to creation was irreversible. Humans, to whom God had given the title deed to planet Earth, had joined the demonic revolution against God and his dynasty. And that happened when Adam and Eve sinned, and consequently, as I said, we were all in their DNA at that moment. The whole human race is now living in a world where Satan basically holds the title deed. Now, how do I know that? Because Jesus said Satan was the prince of this wor world or the prince of this earth. And our first parents surrendered that over to Satan. Okay, number 10. God did something for humans and this world that he didn't do for the angels. He made a plan of redemption. So we got something the angels did not get. This is really important to understand. When God made angels, he wanted assistance. When God made us, he wanted daughters and sons. 
So consequently, God did for us what he didn't do for the angels in that he sent Jesus into the world to pinch hit for us. And for 33 years, he ran the table, never did anything wrong, took that perfect life, laid it on a Roman cross, and the way God looked at it, our sin was paid for. Our sin was clicked and dragged and placed on Christ. His righteousness is clicked and dragged, placed on us, so that this moment, God has an offer on the table of a second chance for all of us. And even if you're not a person of faith, you've probably heard the term salvation, which is, that's what that offer is. God is just basically putting an offer on the table for a second chance through what Jesus did for us. Another question I've been asked so many times, why didn't God just end this thing when Jesus rose from the grave? Because after all, he'd accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Why didn't God end it then? Well, I think you know the answer to that. It was necessary for a lot of time to pass to give billions of people an opportunity to take advantage of God's second chance. I mean, if, if God had ended this thing when Jesus rose from the grave, where would that leave you and me? So God, of course, has things he wants to accomplish. Number 12, until God calls time, humans will be caught in the clash of dynasties, oppressed by the evil angels, demons, and assisted by those who stayed faithful to God. Now I'm going to give you my favorite verse in this whole message today, because we're talking about angels, and now you and I Human beings who've been given a second chance, many of us have already taken that second chance opportunity, our status has been eternally changed. Here is number 13. We are surrounded by the angels of God. Say, Mark, how do you know that? Well, it's all over the Bible, but let me just give you this definitive statement from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Again, this is my favorite verse in today's talk. All the angels are spirits who serve God and are sent to help those who will receive salvation. So even though we live caught in a clash of dynasties, we're not by ourselves because God has sent these angels. And remember, there are millions and millions of angels. God has sent his angels to assist us, and they are spirits, even though we may not recognize them. And every once in a while, God allows them to take human form. We don't recognize them, but they're here. And someone could say, well, Mark, have you ever experienced angels? Because the Bible does say that some people have entertained angels without knowing that they did. I know I've got friends who take a purely naturalistic view of explaining everything, and I'm going to freak them out right now, but, you know, yeah, yeah. I think I've worn out six or seven guardian angels. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there, there are moments I've shared some with you. Some are just between me and God. And I know, and I hear, like I say, I have a lot of friends who are skeptics, and they would just say, oh, Mark, you, this is just the law of averages, and just, you know, the dice fell right for you, and, and you know, imagine if, if, you, if you've been to Kansas City, which I guess practically all of us, imagine if someone said to you, there's no such place as Kansas City. You wouldn't disrespect them, but you would just say, you know what, really, that's kind of annoying, because I've been there. I know it's there. And so I, I don't, hopefully I'm, hopefully I'm never arrogant or anything, but I mean, my gosh, when I've experienced them, why would I let somebody tell me that what I know to be true isn't true? I've just been there. And I mean, there's so many stories about this. I have a doctor friend here at New Spring. He's taken many missionary trips. He's got a story that would cause the hair to stand up on your head. But again, there are these stories in the Bible. Let me just read to you one of them from the Bible that will give us a biblical basis, and then we'll, we'll just maybe talk about this a little bit more. This story is in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6, and it's a quirky story. God's prophet Elisha was helping his king. 
even though his king, the king of Israel, was not a very godly man. And at this point, the Israelites were being attacked by the Syrians. The Bible will call, you you will identify this as Aram here, but it's Syria. And the Syrians were very powerful. So what would happen is the Syrians would think at any point we can just overrun the people from Israel because our army is so much more powerful, excuse me, than theirs. And so what happened was every time the king of Syria would set up to attack Israel, Israel's army was waiting on him. So he knew that somebody was giving the king of Israel information. And so he called in his top generals, king of Syria did. And he said, which one of you guys is on the payroll of the king of Israel? Because somebody here is a spy. And one of his generals said, sir, none of us are spies. It's just there's this prophet down there in Israel, and he tells the king anything you say. And this is interesting. It's in the Bible. I read it this morning. He said, even if you say something in your bedroom, for some reason, that prophet knows about it, and he tells the king of Israel, and that's why the army's always waiting for us. So the king of Syria said, well, there's no reason for one prophet to... uh, have this kind of power. He said, we're just going to take a big army down there and we're going to whack that preacher. So he does. I mean, he sends his army down there and they just surround Elisha's subdivision. And when Elisha's assistant, Gehazi, wakes up the next morning, he looks and there's like the biggest SWAT team in history around their house. And he's freaking. I mean, after all, I mean, these are two guys against the most powerful army in the world. Now, I've set it up. Let's read it. Elisha's servant got up that morning. When he went outside, he saw an army with horses and chariots all around the city, the Syrians. The servant said to Elisha, oh, my master, what can we do? Elisha said, don't be afraid. The army that fights for us is larger than the army that fights for Aram. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I ask you, open my servant's eyes so that he can see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and the servant saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. They were all around Elisha. So consequently, Elijah Elijah said, hey, it's not a problem. Yeah, we got the biggest army in the world outside our house, but we're not worried about this. And he said, God opened his eyes. And when God opened his eyes, he saw there was a much bigger army. I love this. The army that fights for us is bigger than the army that fights for the Assyrians. In 1973, Billy Graham wrote a book on angels. He just got, like me, he got interested in in the title of the subject of angels and he told a story in his book about the Patton family who were missionaries to New Hebrides. And not long after they had gotten there, there were hostile natives who decided they were going to kill this family and burn their house. And so an army of these natives gathered around the house, and they had full intention of killing the Patton family and burning their house, of course. And so the Pattons, they only a father, mother, two daughters, they they were terrified, and they began to pray, and they prayed all night just waiting at any moment for you know the other shoe to drop. But the next morning when they got up, they looked outside and nobody was there. A year later, the chief of that tribe accepted Christ. And so John Patton was talking to the chief and said, hey, you remember that night when you got all your men and you gathered around, you were going to kill us and burn us out? He said, what happened that night? And the chief said, well, it was all those men who were with you. And he said, it's just me, my wife, and my daughters. He said, no, no, no. He said, there were were shining men standing guard with swords. And when we saw them, we decided to leave. Now, that story is repeated time and time again. And as I said, I've experienced things like this too. But we shouldn't be surprised. See, our problem is we have so much misinformation about angels that we don't understand the fact that those of us who have, as the Bible says, received salvation, God sends millions and millions of angels to help us. May God help us recognize something. 
May God help us recognize how many there are, because think about this. If only one-third of the angels rebelled and two-thirds of the angels stayed loyal to God, it means this is not a fair fight because it's two to one. And we already have seen what the angels of God have the ability to do. So it is real clear that the angels of darkness are supported by a defeated foe. The angels of righteousness are two to one, and they're supported by the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful God. Consequently, this is not a fair fight. I've been candid with you through the years that I deal with an emotional disorder. I'm a poster child for ADD, and I deal with a little bit of an anxiety disorder. And I know how the enemy comes, and especially when you're going through a difficult season and you're tired. The enemy will come and tell you you're all by yourself. I want you to remember this sermon the next time that happens. And when the enemy comes to tell you that you're all by yourself, you just tell him, I have millions and millions of angels who are coming to protect me. And you know what? Frankly, devil, it's getting a little crowded in here. If I were you, I'd just haul it out of here while you still have a chance. You say, Mark, I don't think you ought to talk like that. Well, James thinks I should. I mean, in the book of James, in the Bible, it just humbles, it says, humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Hey, the devil's a liar. When he comes to all of us who deal with anxiety, you know, I have some brothers and sisters here. When he comes to us who deal with anxiety, you just tell him, hey, if it were me, you could whip me, but I'm telling you, it's those others around me that you need to worry about. Well, here's 14. Here's the last bullet point. There are hierarchies of angels on both sides, and that's interesting because it's not something that we tend to know. And now hold on to something solid because this next one is probably something that many of you have never thought of before. There are hierarchies of angels on both sides with both dynasties assigning angels to specific locations. Now, if you think about this, just think about it on a practical basis. If you think about the power centers that are part of our culture, you can pretty well tell that Satan has invested some pretty substantial power in those areas. But just so that you will know that I'm giving you what the Bible says and not just my opinion, I want to take you now to some of the large section of the book of Daniel, which is our book this summer, about a conversation that Daniel is part of. So here's the thing. Let me set it up before we get into it. Daniel now is an elderly man. He's probably about 90 years of age. He has been in Babylon He's for the entire length of the Babylonian uh, dynasty, Babylonian kingdom, which is 70 years. Daniel was 15 when he went there. He's about 90 now. And Daniel has been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said that the people of God would be in captivity for 70 years. And Daniel is wondering when we can go home. And so he prays and he asks God, God, explain this chapter of Jeremiah to me. Now we're going to pick it up at that point. Daniel said, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning. His eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze and his voice roared. We got an angel here. Okay. Now verse 11. And the man said to me, Daniel, stand up for I've been sent to you. That's what we read in Hebrews. One more time, angels are spirits who serve God, who are sent to help those who will receive salvation. Nothing unusual here. The angel said, I've been sent to you. 
And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Now, we're not talking about an actual ruler in, our, in Persia. We're talking about an angel here. Now, here's the thing. The Bible's been trying to tell us this for so many times. We're told in Scripture that we as Christ followers do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It simply means our enemies are never people. I wish the church could discover that. We're, we're never in a fight against people. Even people who believe the very opposite of us. We never fight against people. Scriptures go on to say our fight is about spiritual wickedness in high places. There are actually four terms there in the Greek that all refer to demon spirits, angels. So consequently, our warfare is never against people. We're never against a human being. We're to love them and to help. But our, our warfare is against the dark dynasty. And so that's exactly what we're reading here in Daniel chapter 10. You got, you got this angel coming to bring an answer to Daniel, and he said, you know, I came to bring you this answer, but I got slowed down for 21 days by the demon that Satan had assigned to Persia. Now like this, then Michael, one of the archangels came to help me and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now I'm here to explain what will happen to you, your people in the future, Israel, of course. So basically this angel, maybe Gabriel, said, uh, oh, here's Michael. Uh, you, Michael, you take, take charge of this guy. I'm going to go on and help Daniel. But it does let us know that both God and Satan have assigned specific angels to specific parts of the country. I assume there is a demon assigned to Kansas. I think I have encountered him a few times. But there's God's angels assigned in, to Kansas, to which I don't know how this all works. We just can piece a little bit of this together from the scripture. But here's what we do know. We do know the angel that's been assigned to Israel. And that's important to me because in a little over a week, I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem. I've been invited over by the Israeli government to participate in some summit meetings with the Israeli government. Should be in the Israeli foreign ministry a week from tomorrow. So this is good for me to read. The Bible says, Daniel 12:1. at that time, Michael, the archangel who stands guard over your nation. Who is their nation? Israel. And I'm out of time, but I wish I had time to just point out the history, the last 70 years of the history of Israel, how time and time again, this tiny nation with a little more than double the population of the state of Kansas, which has the seventh most powerful army in the world, according to Reuters. That's amazing when you think about that juxtaposition. How that time and time again, this little tiny nation has been pushed to the brink, and yet God has caused them to be victorious. 1948, 1956, 1967, 1973, on and on it goes. But that's because they're not by themselves. And we live in a world today where there's greater and greater hostility against Israel. Let me just be real straight with you. If you have hostility against Israel, you are running head on to God. And I would think twice about that. They are his nation. And they always have been. And I, I've just in my lifetime, I've learned nobody flips God off. And Israel is guarded by Michael and by God, of course. Now, I need to end this thing. So let me just close with a single thought. If you say to me, Mark, what is your biggest takeaway from this message? Well, I like the fact that God's angels are around us to protect us. But I don't think there's a bigger thought than this.
that God did something for me that he didn't do for the angels, that God did something for you. He never gave them a second chance, but he's got an offer on the table for you today, an opportunity to have a second chance. You know what the Bible says? This is interesting. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find out more about this. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 1.12. Those who have preached the gospel to you, that's salvation, the good news. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. So that means angels are interested. You know, up in heaven today, I guess in the presence of God, there are angels that are kind of leaning over to watch what happens at New Spring Church today. And they're curious about this. They're just interested in this thing. I mean, they, they just find this, and forgive the word, but I think they find it the coolest thing in the world that you get a second chance. And the Bible says the angels are interested and look into these things. Now, here's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Because it, it really syncs up well with what we just saw. Jesus said there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents. That means every time a, a, a person, a human being, takes God's second chance that the angels just go nuts in heaven. And I mean, like, like they did when Jesus was born. The angels celebrate every time a person accepts God's offer of salvation. They didn't get that chance. But the ones who love God, they love you. And they're excited that if you've taken God up on his offer, they get excited. And you know what? If somebody here, if some 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 are watching online were to say today, we want to take God's offer, the angels in heaven and go nuts. Because they're pumped about this thing of God offering a second chance. You know, here's the thing about it. It's why I hate religion. Re religion, I don't mean hate the people. I mean, I just hate the systems. Because religion says jump through these hoops and you can be part of our religion. That's not what God says. God says, I love you. And you're flawed and broken and bankrupt and you can't fix yourself. The only way you can have another chance is to realize that God sent Jesus into the world to do it for you. And he lived the life that you can't live and then took the punishment that you don't have to take. So that anyone who puts faith, confidence, trust in the work that God did through Jesus for you on your behalf, if you're willing to come as a flawed, bankrupt, broken person and say, I need a savior, I need a rescuer, the Bible says that God will wash all your sins away, past, present, and future, write your name in the census book of heaven, Click and drag the righteousness of Jesus Christ and put it on your account and make you God's daughter. Not a servant, not an assistant, but God's daughter or God's son. Hey, I like a good deal. I've never found a better deal than that. And if you are here today or watching online or watching on television and you want that to be your decision, I'm telling you right now, the angels are like leaning over in heaven watching this. And you can pray with me. Now, these aren't magic words, but I'm going to pray a prayer that just says yes to God. I'm going to pray it slowly. You can decide if you want to own it and say it to God. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I am flawed and broken beyond repair. I come to you today declaring spiritual bankruptcy. I need a savior. I need Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And since he lives, I want him to be my savior and king. Thank you for hearing my prayer. 
Thank you for making me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I know we're crowded, but I have a gift I want to give. If you just prayed, no strings attached, total gift, won't cost you anything. I've got a box prepared for you. It's got a Bible just like I preach from. It's got a little book I wrote. Remember, I have ADD, so I don't write long books. They'll answer a lot of questions. So all you got to do is stop by any info center on the campus and say, I pray with Mark. That's all you have to do. Next week, the message, Daniel tells your future. See you then.